guest today is Stephen Nelson, a political scientist at Northwestern, uh, who we're really excited to talk to. Steve's work spans a wide range of areas. There's um, a lot of interesting work about the functioning of the IMF uh, and work about the formation of domestic political attitudes about policies that are relevant to sovereign debt and sovereign debt disputes, uh, including the policies like capital controls and um, even more sort of, uh, legally uh, salient policies like opposition to hold out creditors. And while Steve's his work is not about Argentina, but he's studied some of these questions in the context of Argentina. And so now seems like a particularly good time to talk about some of these questions, both because the, the central government restructuring is still pretty fresh in people's minds, and especially because the province of Buenos Aires uh, has concluded its restructuring even more recently. And that restructuring though it had pretty generous financial terms for creditors, also had some some pretty coercive elements. And in particular, one of them really piqued, uh, I think I can speak for me too, Me Too's and my attention. And it was this threat that uh, non-participants in the restructuring would risk having the place of payment on their bonds changed to somewhere within Argentina where you know, not very subtly, the, the threat was that central government capital controls would then prevent investors from taking their money out. And so the, we're interested in this threat, both uh, in part because it might prompt some legal objections, but also because we were wondering what the domestic politics of capital controls were and whether domestic political factors might actually constrain what a, a government could do in situations like this. And Steve was really the best person we could we could possibly think of to, to talk to about questions like that. So Steve, sorry for the, the long-winded introduction, but um, we're excited to have you on the show and thanks for thanks for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Can we start sort of simple and just ask you about the domestic politics of capital controls? Like I, I would have thought before reading some of your work that this was kind of a non-issue for in terms of its domestic political salience. And I gather that's sometimes true, but not always. And so can, can we sort of just talk about the, the, uh, the basics here of when capital controls might trigger some domestic political opposition? Of course. Uh, I think it's a great entry point for this conversation. And I, I think actually it might be helpful to try to disaggregate capital controls, which is this capacious category that includes different kinds of elements. And so I'd like to start by thinking about three kinds of dimensions along which capital controls can be configured. So you have inflow controls and outflow controls. So that's one kind of distinction of controls which try to deter foreign investors from pouring certain kinds of investment into the economy. And then you have outflow controls, which really target uh, domestic citizens and try to restrict or prohibit certain kinds of transactions with the rest of the world. So that's one dimension that, that uh, we should distinguish. Another dimension would be the stringency of these controls. So you can have outright bans, uh, which are perhaps a more extreme form of capital control. 
And then you can have more laxly enforced or uh, a bit less stringent kind of control, which would be something like maybe a tax, which would just make it a little more costly to engage in, in cross-border capital transactions. And I would also think then about the capaciousness of the controls themselves, like what kinds of transactions are being targeted with these controls. So you could say, you know, we're going to limit acquisitions of US dollars for any kind of transaction, or you could have a much more targeted kind of control, which goes after a particular kind of transaction, for example, real estate acquisition, if there's like a really overheated housing market, you just say those kinds of transactions with foreign investors um, are subject to some kind of control. So you see capital controls configured in different ways. So they use these different dimensions uh, and certain dimensions might be um, amplified in some cases and other ones dampened. Argentina has tried like everything. I mean, that's what makes Argentina for a political economist a particularly fascinating case. They've tried everything. But the tendency in Argentina is toward the more stringent rather than the laxer form of control. And I think it's because Argentina has trouble doing half measures. And part of the reason Argentina has trouble doing half measures when it comes to capital controls is that once you put in these controls, there's some signals that are released by the government to the population of the country and to investors abroad. And the signal is not very good. It's usually like the economy's in trouble. We're not perhaps particularly competent economic managers. And then that signal changes uh, ordinary people and uh, elite financial actors' expectations about what might happen in the future. And those expectations then tend to influence behavior. And they influence behavior in a pretty predictable way, which is people try to get out of pesos and into a, a currency uh, unit that they believe will actually hold its value. Okay, so this is a lot of lead up to get to the sort of meat of the question you were asking about, which is the, the political, domestic political opposition to, to capital controls. Because if the capital controls are on the lighter end, then I think you're right. It's not a particularly salient domestic political issue. It's very low on the list of the kinds of things that shift voters' preferences. But as you move into the more stringent kind of capital control uh, regime, for lack of a better word, then you start to see domestic political opposition mount. And in part, this is because when you have outflow controls, which cover a lot of different kinds of transactions and which require a lot of administration, this brings average people into contact with these policies in a way that often um, makes them very unhappy because it restricts their ability to try to get out of a currency that they're worried about and into uh, investments that they think are going to, to preserve their purchasing power. So it's the more capacious form of capital controls that tend to amplify domestic opposition. And that's the kind of capital control that I think Argentina and some other countries which have Argentina-like characteristics end up uh, implementing. So, uh, and stop me if I'm going on too long on this point, but if I'm thinking about where in the voting population in Argentina, capital controls tend to be most unpopular. I think this is the sort of mass middle class or perhaps upper middle class. The elite segments of Argentine society, they find ways around these things. They already have most of their wealth probably held outside the country anyways. The very impoverished segment of the Argentine population, which is pretty large and is actually growing, unfortunately, due to the 
economic turmoil in the country, they are not so concerned about these these kinds of of, of controls because they don't have savings. Like you know, th- th- there's nothing for them to try to switch into. It's the mass middle that I think is the the population where these controls can become very unpopular. And in my research, which is with an excellent political economist named David Steinberg, who's at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, what we've done is try to use Argentina as a a test case to see the conditions under which capital controls can become a salient political issue and whether those controls can become so salient that they actually matter for electoral outcomes. And we think they can become salient in the, the environments that, that have the features that I was just discussing. And yes, they do actually become electorally salient, salient issues um, when these controls are something that average individuals come into contact with in their daily financial lives. So Stephen, um, if I may draw the connection a little bit to contract clauses that, you know, Mark and I are obsessed with, but that Argentina has flagged for us, or specifically the province of Buenos Aires's recent restructuring, where they in effect threaten investors with the prospect of imposing capital controls. Listening to you and looking at your work, your recent work with David on this, would you say I'd be able to make some predictions about what kinds of countries the threat of imposing capital controls would be plausible and what kinds of countries it would not be plausible? Yeah, it's, this is a great question. It taps something which is a challenge in this work, which is Argentina-centric which is that Argentina is perceived perhaps rightly as an exceptional case, some might say an extreme case. And so when you move outside of that context to think about the generalizability of these arguments, you have to be sensitive to the possibility that the factors which make capital controls so salient in Argentina might be dampened in other places. But if I were to look for other places, look for features, where I might think that this threat would be kind of credible as a way to strong arm creditors into accepting some terms in a restructuring. You wanna look for places where there is habitual saving of excess income in a foreign currency, which is probably dollars. So those are countries that have a history of currency volatility. And there's a lot of countries that have history of currency volatility. You'd also want to I think look for environments which have a history of raising and lowering the gates, right? There are some countries like China, which have basically a big firewall, right? A a kind of uh, a way to segment their financial system from the rest of the world. Capital controls are just a fact of life. The gates never really come up. Maybe they get a little lower and maybe they get a little higher, but the gate is always there. In places like Argentina, you have this cyclical way in which capital controls are deployed. The gate will come down, then the gate will come up, then the gate will come down. And I think in those environments, that's where you're also likely to see mass politics uh, 
bump up against the the decision to 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 use capital controls, and that's where this becomes a more a more kind of uh, credible threat. So there are some countries that share these 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 qualities, uh, but Argentina is unique. I mean, this is this is the challenge with, like I said, generalizing from a a case which is is um, is kind of exceptional because those factors are are amplified. They have kind of extreme values. In Argentina, so I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of say this. You know, if you if you were to go out and survey the world, these are the five most likely places where one would see this kind of threat be credible. But you don't have to look that far back in history, and you don't have to look that far from Argentina to find other examples. I mean, Greece is actually a, a case where capital controls were very domestically salient in, in a in a mass politics context, and uh, and which shares some of these features uh, with Argentina. So let, let, if you don't mind, um, let me follow up. And th this is, I hope it's not going off on a tangent, but uh, I, I grew up in India uh, in the 70s and 80s and capital controls were just normal part of life. We couldn't travel overseas because we couldn't, convert our money into foreign currency and we just we couldn't buy foreign goods because again we, we couldn't convert our uh, currency into foreign money i think sort of if you came to the u.s for any reason the government would allocate you 20 dollars 20 u.s dollars and so you know unless somebody else was going to meet you at the airport and uh, help you uh, you, you just couldn't go. But uh, India has changed uh, dramatically and people are now used to traveling abroad. They're used to buying foreign products. Uh, it is hard for me to imagine that the Indian government could suddenly say, uh, because they needed to screw over foreign investors, they were going to impose capital controls because I, I think there would be just sort of mass uh, revolt and they, they, would, they would suffer. But as I understand what you're saying, that Argentina, in part because it's so unpredictable and that they, they just act in this random, crazy fashion, that that it is a credible threat. And so if I were to look at uh, contract terms, so you know, in the contract terms that Mark and I look at, there are voting requirements uh, to change uh, the place of payment, for example, where the bonds will be paid. And the threat that the province of Buenos Aires was making vis-a-vis uh, -vis investors was, uh, you know, we're going to change the place of payment to make it, you know, down the street in Buenos Aires to some local financial institution. And then, then we're going to impose capital controls and where you'll never get your money. So you better agree to our restructuring. At least that's how I read it. And, um, but it, it is hard for me to imagine that happening in India. So Mark and I were talking about, you know, how credible is this threat even in Argentina? Because, you know, like, aren't investors going to say, well, uh, why don't you do it? You're going to hurt yourself by doing this kind of sort of idiocy. And I, if I understand your answer correctly, you're saying, no, it's a real threat in Argentina because the, they, they follow this strategy of just random random behavior, random behavior is not right since it's actually not random, but that, that you can't predict uh, co confidently that they will suffer electoral harm 
by doing this. And we, we know from, our, from long experience in the sovereign debt markets that the one thing politicians are not going to do is suffer electoral harm. Well, that, this is, yeah, you, you've got it really right on this. And I, because I don't want to make it sound like capital controls and the imposition of capital controls are the tightening of existing capital controls, which is really the situation in Argentina. I mean, they, they have capital controls. What's happening is further tightening. Those dimensions that I've talked about are, are they're sort of moving up the scale in terms of, of clamping down on transactions that normal people engage in to try to get dollars. It's not politically very popular, but in Argentina, in a polarized political system with a history of, again, I wouldn't necessarily agree with the diagnosis of randomness, but with frequent regime switches in terms of the, the degree to which the government in power wants to engage with the rest of the world. Sometimes they lift these things, sometimes they, they lower these things. And, and there is a far greater frequency of this in say Argentina than in India. I think that what the Argentine government can signal is that they know that there's a political cost that they might pay, but they're willing to absorb it. And I think you're right that in some other context, it might not be so credible that they're willing to absorb this backlash that would be produced by the imposition of a, of a really tight set of, of capital controls. So there are limited places. I think this is, this is an important point. India might be a case of you had a gate, a really high gate, the gate comes up and it's going to be really hard to, to put it back down uh, without paying a, a big political price. But when the gate goes up and down repeatedly and the dominant political power in, in Argentina historically, which is the Peronists, have survived raising and lowering that gate, then it's more credible to signal to, to, to creditors that we know this is not politically popular, but we still think we can survive. And so you better think about this when you are negotiating with us over these contractual terms, because we may treat you as if you are an Argentine depositor, and then you'll be subject to these controls and you won't be able to get your money out, or you certainly won't be able to get the quantity out that you'd like to, because I think right now you're limited to exchanging pesos for dollars up to $200, which is nothing per month, right? I mean, that, that's, that's it's not quite India in the 1970s, but it's not that far off. I wonder, though, if maybe the threat is credible for a wider range of countries than, than maybe we're giving them credit for, in part because there might be really different time horizons in play. Like I, I imagine the threat has some potency for an investor, even if the imposition of capital controls is predictably going to be kind of time limited. Is I mean, my experience with, with Argentina, and, and it's more anecdotal than anything else, but that once capital controls are in place, it, it seems to take a while for them to gain salience as a political issue. And I would imagine that dynamic might be true in a lot of other countries as well. And if I can if it's going to be five years or even two years before the domestic politics changes to the extent they need to be removed. Um, I don't know, I wonder, does it, does, is there something, um, is it worth thinking about the different, and are there different time horizons for investors than for um, domestic voters? Almost certainly. I, I think that is a, a really, a really good point to, to, Dovetail with this point, I do think, however, that 
imposing particularly stringent outflow controls, it's difficult to do those measures in a, in a brief and very targeted fashion where you would expect actually you can use these quickly to solve a problem and then remove them and the salience of the issue will not matter because people basically won't notice. The problem of course has to do with expectations and average individuals will observe this policy change which typically then will produce a big gap between the black market price of the currency that everybody wants to hold and the official price. And as that gap widens, and as you expect that gap to grow even further, then more and more people are gonna to try to get out of their pesos or for each additional increment of savings that they get in pesos they want to get, uh, get into, into dollars, which is further gonna drive the gap between the official and the black market price of the currency up. And then that makes those capital controls actually more difficult to remove because you get this drain of savings, you get a drain of reserves, and you need then the controls to actually get tighter to be able to support the currency value and to be able to try to staunch the outflow of, of reserves. And so I think that investors must recognize that when the outflow controls in particular are put in place, this is probably going to be in place for some time. There will be a lag between when the outflow controls are put in place and when mass politics makes this a central issue. And that time duration is probably influenced by the electoral clock because the incumbent party that put these controls in place, they're gonna get attacked in Argentina for tightening or imposing the controls. So investors might might be willing to say, yeah, okay, this we, we have a much shorter time horizon. We can get out more quickly uh, than, 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 you know, basically you know, in a much uh, more rapid fashion than, than um, the, the clock by which um, politics moves. And so I, I think that's right that you, 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 you have put your finger on this different um, kind of uh, uh, acceleration of time between the investment community and the sort of electoral system. Can, can we um, switch gears just a little bit before we take a quick break? Um, I wanted to, to ask a, a different question, but one that also is uh, fundamentally, I think, about domestic politics. And, and this one is uh, about... Uh, political attitudes towards uh, either opposing or conceding to foreign creditors. And this is something, of course, that got a lot of political salience in Argentina uh, in connection with the years-long battle with Elliot uh, after the 2001 default. But the, so this, the reason I ask is that in a variety of legal contexts, one sometimes hears the at least the implicit claim that there is not really any material domestic cost to paying foreign creditors. So, so as an example, um, you know, some people would say that in the context of international arbitration awards. Um, holders of sovereign debt who benefit from an arbitration award are in a really good position relative to people who have court judgments because you know legally you're supposed to pay the arbitration award and, and 
you're, it's fine to, to ignore a court judgment. That, um, sort of a simplistic way of thinking about it. And my, my reaction to those, those claims has always been like, no, that's, that's BS, uh, especially in the context of a debt default or prospective debt default. Um, there's just, there's no incentive whatsoever and to pay uh, foreign creditors. And in fact, there's every incentive not to. But I wonder if that's a, a Again, a too simplistic way of thinking about this. And I'm wondering what we know about the domestic politics of kind of interacting with and potentially opposing foreign creditors in the context of, of um, debt distress. Right, right. So I think we know that debtors usually pay, right? Countries usually, usually want to settle, which makes Argentina's intransigence a little unusual. And then I, I think it would be helpful to maybe talk a bit about what makes the Argentine setting, I think, uh, particularly likely to politicize repaying or settling with withholdout creditors, when in most cases, people, the, the government does pay and they don't seem to pay a big cost, even though, as you pointed out, you can generate arguments for why, why they might as well hold out. So in Argentina, all the, anyone who's listening to this, I'm sure knows the, the backstory with the, the legal entanglements with Elliott Associates and other holders of, of Argentine bonds, and that the government headed by Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who's currently the vice president in Argentina, and some people think has a, a lot of influence over the, the current policy trajectory, pursued by, by the, the government, which is run by Alberto Fernandez, who's not related to her, but is in the same Peronist political coalition. Uh, Christina took this very hard line, right, that they would not pay, they would not settle with the, with the holdout creditors. And one would wonder why, because it seems economically costly not to settle. Certainly being locked out of international capital markets was not good for investment in Argentina, it probably held down Argentina's economic growth rates, and it became a salient political issue in the 2015 electoral campaign. So why wouldn't Christina want to settle? Why would this fight with the creditors be viewed as a political advantage? Well, in Argentina, I think it's important to understand that there's a high degree of political polarization, which means that partisan affiliation is really important. In a way, it looks a little like the United States. I mean, partisanship is a hell of a drug. I mean, look at the current state of affairs in the United States where even basic public health issues have been politicized along partisan lines. So polarization in Argentina actually looks pretty similar. And when you have incredibly polarized uh, political environments, people are willing to adopt cues from the co-partisans that they follow. And Christina chose to make this a salient political issue that holding out is in fact uh, uh, the morally right thing to do. And her co-partisans seem to follow. So the biggest predictor of people's attitudes toward settling rather than um, a holding out in the dispute with Elliott and, and the other um, hedge funds and, and bondholders was partisan affiliation. I mean, it just like dominates all other uh, potential explanatory factors that might influence people's opinions about these things. So polarization is really important, but 
you also have polarization in a context where there are catalyzing historical episodes. 2001 crisis, prior economic crises in Argentina, which give the Peronist party, which has a populist caste, some grist for their mill to try to portray economic problems in Argentina as emanating from forces abroad. So that dynamic is not always present in other places. So you couple the historical legacy with the partisan polarization, and then you have this latent uh, salient dimension that, that uh, officials can seize upon to try to win, win votes and maintain the support of their, of their co-partisans. And that dynamic is not present necessarily in other places, but I think when it is present, then you're more likely to see, to see holding out because it's a politically sustainable position for a, a, a government to take. But otherwise, the costs of holding out are, are probably overwhelming. Governments settle, and the issue is just there's, there's no political entrepreneurs on the scene who want to raise this as a as a as a, a salient issue that should be central to a, a, a an electoral campaign. So, Stephen. We're supposed to take a break now, but I, I, I can't help but ask another question because I am fascinated by this. And it, I don't know why India keeps coming uh, to my mind uh, today. So the, the question is whether one can connect the, the domestic willingness of politicians to fight creditor claims to legacies of imperialism, uh, leg legacies of colonialism. Uh, because certainly when I was going to Argentina frequently during the you know, post-2001 crisis and talking to people there, th there was this, this deep sense that you know, Western courts, they're just gonna, they're just out to screw us over and favor the investors who are not behaving fairly uh, to us. And there's a, there's a whole history of them trying to come and take our stuff. And this, this is just part of that history. Now, I say that as a preface to uh, recent news articles that surprised me. I, I don't know if um, either of you saw, but there's a big Financial Times article just a couple of days ago about how uh, Jay Newman of the fame of uh, Elliott and NML versus Argentina is now helping a set of litigation funds try and seize uh, Indian assets. And, and the, he has all these pronouncements as, as he often does um, about, you know, this is just, a, the, we need to show the Indian government how to behave. And this is about the rule of law, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, I always think like, what's the strategy here? Because this is just, to me, this is just poking the bear. Uh, th this is allowing a highly nationalist government, uh, the, the political space to say, you know, screw these people. Like, who are they to tell us about the rule of law when they, they spent hundreds of years just trying to take every asset we had? We're going to fight them to the death when 
you know, but for poking the bear, I would think that their instinct would be, look, you know, let, let's pay them. Let, let's not appear uh, to be uh, pariahs or wanting to be pariahs in the international markets. Uh, we need to, you know, we need to pay what we owe. And I, I, just, I don't understand it, but it, it, it does seem to be, um, like, it does seem to be that uh, sometimes the, this, this history of colonialism can come back and it changes the political calculus. But I don't know, you're the political scientist. So y you've opened up this discussion and um, I'm fascinated by it. But I promise after your answer, we will go to the break. I, I, I'll keep going. This is a great, that's a great question. I hesitate to wade into talking about India because I, I know so little, although I did see that article. My first reaction was I thought Jay Newman was retired, but apparently he's he's been pulled yeah. back in, right? The rule of law has pulled the love of the rule of <laughs> the law has pulled him back in. Exactly. This is retirement dollars. Yeah, well, Mark might be right. Maybe this is his his retirement activity. Some people pick up shuffleboard or pickleball, but Jay Newman sues people. Um, I think it's a fascinating observation. Even the iconography in Argentina, if we could call it that around the dispute with the holdout creditors adopted imagery that is very much in line with what you just said me to. The poster, I have a picture you know, that, that I took of, of a poster, which, uh, which had two images, one of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, and it said above her, o estas con Cristina, like, you know, you're with Cristina. And then it was next to an image of Judge Grisey, his face superimposed, sort of put on the image of Uncle Sam, and it said, oh, estas con los Yankees, right? So it's like, are you with Christina or are you with the Yankees? And so there's very clear, I, you know, who knows who put that up? It could have been a social group. It could have been uh, sort of part of the Peronist party. I, I actually don't know the, the origin of, of the, the, the poster, but it is still something that you've put your finger on, which is, in certain environments where there is a nationalist, populist political movement and a historical legacy of outside involvement in domestic affairs, which are perceived, particularly in colonized environments, perceived to have had a asset stripping and entangling and destructive effect, certainly political entrepreneurs can seize upon that uh, history and people are already primed in those environments um, to be compelled by their co-partisans to take the, the position that the, 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 the political entrepreneurs would like them to take, which is support us in our fight against these outside forces, which are seeking to raid the public coffers. The difference I can see between the Indian example and the Argentine example is I think it's easier to make the case that Elliott Associates and other investors are raiding public coffers, that they're taking money away from social investments, that they're taking money away from the education system, from hospitals, from all the other things that serve the working people, which is the segment of Argentine society that the Peronist Party has the, the strongest affiliation. It is a bit different in the Indian case, where the legal conflict is over a private firm, unless I'm mistaken, and it's a, it's a publicly owned entity or it has a close relationship to the Indian government. 
So it's a little bit harder, I think, to mobilize around a private firm and what looks like a corporate struggle over contractual terms than a, a, an effort, as the Argentines tried to portray, uh, an effort to, to raid the public coffers and basically take food out of the mouths of, of poor Argentines. But you're absolutely right that in these contexts, which have both a historical legacy and a significant populist, nationalist political movement, this is a, 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 an area which is ripe for political entrepreneurship to make this a, a salient issue. And I don't think in the Argentine case that Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner was able to win voters from the other party over to her side, right? It didn't. It, it, capital controls may be able to do that, actually, at the margins, can swing people away from the party that implemented them because they're so disliked by people in the mass middle classes. Rather, I think that in the Argentine case, the amplification of dissent around the uh, the, the struggle with, with, the, with the creditors that are outside of the country was an effort to try to mobilize support among a voting population that is affiliated with the Peronists, but might not have been very excited, or might have not really been happy about the, the, um, the, the competence of, of economic management. So those are, I, I think you're right, that, that with a history of colonialism plus populist nationalist movements, this can become salient, but it's probably only when bondholders are going after the, the, the um, state's coffers. And I'm just a little more doubtful that private uh, companies' legal entanglements could become so salient. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. And we really, we really should take, take our short break. But, you know, I wonder, there's a blending since it's the state's assets they're going to be going after. Um, so once they start seizing planes from mm. the state-owned airline, uh, which is sort of next on Jay Newman's agenda, I think. I'm you know, curious to see how that changes domestic perceptions about it. But um, uh, we will see. Let, let, let's, let's take a short break so that we don't um, keep Me Too up past his bedtime. If you don't mind, we're hoping to switch gears a little bit to talk of about some of your other fascinating recent work. And Mark and I have been particularly interested in your new project on IMF programs and human rights compliance. And uh, from a legal perspective, there is some been some very interesting research, I, I might not get it right, but uh, about how sometimes you find that countries that uh, sign up for lots and lots of human rights treaties are not really the countries that are most committed to human rights, not committed to maintaining human rights. Instead, it's the opposite. They, they sign up for lots and lots of treaties uh, in part because they're committing lots and lots of human rights violations and that, that there's no connection. So uh, I have always thought IMF reform programs, surely they go hand in hand with uh, improving governance and improving uh, things like human rights compliance and your research I think is beginning to tell us that maybe we shouldn't be so sanguine about that. So I'm hoping you can give us the basics of that and then we can get into you know, why this is happening. Sure. 
it's it's a question that I got interested in, if you'll allow me to take a very short detour. I, I, I did my dissertation on the IMF and I was interested in the relationship between the IMF and borrowers and particularly interested in neoliberal economic ideas, which are held by policymakers in countries and how when you have a policy team that's composed of people I would call neoliberal officials, how that changes the relationship with the IMF. And part of that work was built around trying to reconstruct Argentina and the IMF's relationship over a fairly long period of time, from 76 to, to 2001. And a lot of the work was archival. I was digging around in these files at the IMF. I know this is a long detour. I promise I'll wrap it up and move to actually answering your question. But when I was digging in those files, I found something which I found interesting which was clippings from newspapers in the late 1970s that detailed evidence of atrocities being committed by the military government that had taken over in Argentina in 1976 and, and ran the country until uh, democratization in 1983. And so the, it suggested to me like, well, the IMF knew something about what was going on. Somebody thought to stick this news clipping into this file, which then eventually made its way into the archives, but the IMF, as far as I could tell, only obliquely referred to human rights concerns when the institution was involved in lending to, to Argentina. Um, and they were lending Argentina when these human rights abuses were, were most severe. So I, I got interested in, in the IMF's thinking about human rights, and then that morphed into this newer work, which um, I, I have to give credit to my collaborator on this, a PhD student at Northwestern named Christopher Dinkle. We've been working on this project for a while. And the project that you refer to is more about trying to detect whether there is an effect of participation in IMF programs on repression or not. There is a tradition in political science of research that suggests, some of this is qualitative, some of this is statistical, that suggests that IMF programs have not been healthy for human rights conditions. And I, it's not so much about signaling that you are in the way that maybe the research you cited about signing on to human rights agreements and then blatantly violating. I don't think it's so much about signaling like we are unconstrained, which is what some people have argued about why human rights treaties seem correlated with worse human rights rather than better human rights. I don't know if I can swear on this show, but the is that okay if I if I drop uh, one curse word because the please men we like, okay. we like curse words. I, I have I've heard me too, but I didn't know if that was just executive privilege. So I I'm going to I'm going to the theory that people have used, or at least the word that people have used to describe what Mitu was talking about is badass, the badass theory. Oh, you of... got to have better T words tell than that. Okay, I was going right. to say, tell us tell us when the swear word is coming. Well, remember, I have two little kids, so I'm very used to uh, censoring myself, although I've gotten much worse at that over the last year and a half. But the badass theory suggests, okay, you you sign on to these things, and then you kill a bunch of people or repress you know, disliked segments of the population in order to signal that you are unconstrained as a, as a dictator. In the case of the IMF, I don't think that's what's going on. So just to be, to be clear about what exactly we're finding, in this project, we, we look at, um, it's a statistical project. We, we collect data from 
countries observed between 1975 and 2014, and we look at dictatorships, we look at authoritarian regimes, because that's where we think repression might be higher when those dictators uh, enter into IMF lending programs. And what we do find is that IMF programs seem to be correlated with worse human rights conditions. And I think the reason that this is going on is because IMF programs require economic adjustment. Those have distributional implications. Some segments of society, life gets harder for them. That leads to an upsurge in dissent and authoritarian regimes crack down on, on, uh, on dissent. Uh, their threshold for using violence is just much lower than de democratic uh, countries. So that's what I think we're, we're settling on as our conclusion. This is unpublished work, so I hesitate to be too strong about the, the robustness of our findings, although I'm fairly convinced that this is, this is what we're, we're finding. It's a real finding, it's not spurious. So to put this as simply as possible, when the IMF lends to the, the baddies, the baddies get worse. And that raises then for me a, a host of, I think, kind of interesting questions about if that's true, what the IMF should do, whether it should take human rights conditions into account when it's making lending decisions or whether it should take regime type as a, a kind of signal about the second order or unintended consequences of the conditions that it attaches to its loans. Like, should the IMF not lend to countries that have a history of human rights abuses, or should the IMF not lend to authoritarian regimes at all? So this is, I'm going to take us, uh, I, I, I know, or at least I think we had wanted to talk about maybe some specific examples. Um, but can I take us on just a little bit of a tangent first? So I'm one one approach to this, or one 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 reaction you might have is to say, well, look, the IMF, it just like this isn't what it does. It, it doesn't have the interest or the capacity to think about or monitor human rights kinds of issues. And this is a possibility that you talk about in the paper. Um, but I can't help but think about the funds kind of enthusiastic embrace of climate policy in thinking about how to implement its programs. And, and it's, I, I'm not sure that I believe that the fund will be an effective institution for financing and encouraging um, serious efforts to address climate change. But certainly that's something that that the fund seems willing to embrace as part of its mandate. I mean, do we, should we think the fund is hypocritical to be embracing climate change, but not human rights? Or should we think the fund is gonna be just as shitty at climate change as it is uh, at influencing human rights related conduct? It's a, it's a great, I, I love that point and that connection between climate policy and, and um, human rights, because I, I hadn't made it. And you're absolutely right that the IMF has, particularly in recent years, and particularly under Kristalina Gorgieva, who, you know, who knows whether she will survive. There's a 
controversy, which we don't need to go into about her prior behavior at the World Bank, the institution she was at before she, she moved over to the IMF. But clearly there has been an, an embrace of this, which really deviates from the lack of interest in human rights. I would say, I mean, this is very anecdotal, but I searched on the IMF's website, imf.org, like to see how much I could find about repression. And I got pages and pages of results. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. Maybe they're talking about repression in these reports and in country reports and article four, and maybe in the public relations side. And what I realized that I had gone wrong is in my search for repression, every single article that came up was about financial repression. I didn't find a single thing about government repression. So the IMF has like really wanted to keep this issue at arm's length, which is very different from other international organizations. And I think that there's two reasons for that. One you've already mentioned, Mark, which is I think the IMF staff and management and to some extent the executive directors perceive this institution's mandate to be fairly limited, that human rights are not something that's in the institution's area or zone of core competency and that there are plenty of other organizations in the world that can monitor and try to enforce human rights, and this should not be added to, to the agenda. The other thing is that the IMF is to an extent bound by its constitutional document, the Articles of Agreement, and the Articles of Agreement has a clause in it which suggests that the IMF needs to be neutral with respect to the political cast of its members. Basically, from what I understand, that's a stipulation which was inserted in the Bretton Woods negotiations by the Soviets who were there at those negotiations to try to ensure that if they joined the institution, they wouldn't be punished for having a command style economy. So there's these two things which seem to restrain the IMF from, from uh, taking on human rights. But we would then say, okay, why then it should climate policy or other areas which do stray well beyond what we would perceive to be the competencies of the IMF, why should that migrate into the institution's practices, whereas human rights should be left off? And I don't think there's a really good answer. I actually think there is a better way, or at least the way I'm thinking about this, a better way of, of trying to incorporate human rights into the IMF's decision-making, which is to think about what this, exclusion does for the moral authority of the institution, which I think some people react to when I say this is they think, what are you talking about? The IMF is not a, a moral actor in world politics. But the authority of the IMF rests on expert, expert authority, the perception of being uh, a relatively unbiased, advice-giving institution which can help improve governance on the ground, but also moral authority that the IMF is not like member states. It doesn't have a military at its disposal. It doesn't intervene in violent ways in other countries. And that if it seeks to sustain the legitimacy of its recommendations, it does need to actually think about its moral authority. So in that way, if it goes forward in the world without acknowledging that climate change might affect the design of these programs or the growth potential of countries, then that would erode its moral authority. And I, I think that same logic should be extended to human rights, that if the IMF is seen as exacerbating repression, then that erodes the, the moral authority of the institution. And I, I do think that's a, that's a problem because we don't have a good alternative to the IMF.
So Stephen, um, we are where um, we should wrap up soon. Uh, we, but I want to uh, ask at least uh, one last question, and uh, maybe Mark will have something on this too. So when I think of uh, the IMF, perhaps uh, in an unduly uh, cynical fashion, probably influenced by your work, Stephen. Um, I always think of it as it, this is just a bunch of uh, nice bureaucrats, you know, a bunch of econ PhDs uh, uh, running around doing what political actors uh, tell them to do. Uh, and in particular, the US, uh, the US uh, says uh, jump and they, they say how high. Uh, and so to the extent we think about lending to dictators, it's, uh, or, or um, having programs to help out dictatorial regimes, uh, it, it's a function of what the US um, or other powerful nations who are significant shareholders want. Now, all of that is the cynical part. I'm interested in a section 701 of the International Financial Institutions Act. Uh, I'm sorry if this is completely wonky and obscure, but uh, as I read it, uh, it uh, this is a 2014 law that um, if memory serves, this must have been Obama administration because surely uh, Trump didn't uh, pass anything like this. Uh, it says that, you know, if there are human rights uh, issues, we, the United States, are, are committed to instructing our representatives, our executive directors at the major international financial institutions like the IMF uh, to constrain uh, support for these kinds of regimes. I mean, the, the statutory language seems uh, fairly clear. And so you would think th this would be used now. Uh, I mean, let, let's pass over Trump. Like they, 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 maybe they were hand in hand with uh, these regimes and the, the statute was irrelevant to them. But now we have Biden in place and you have situations like the one in Ethiopia where uh, there seems to be clear uh, uh, problematic behavior by some of the governments. And I had heard rumors that uh, people in the Biden administration who remembered uh, 701 had begun chattering about it. But I think as a practical matter, they, they've backed off. They, they don't want to do diddly squat. And so, I mean, if we think about human rights and the IMF, don't we really, we just have to think about whether or not the big shareholders of the IMF are really committed to this. That was a long-winded question and I'm gonna ask, don't we? No, it's a, it's a really good question. And I can imagine you know, my turn to invoking the moral authority of the IMF is uh, seeming strange if people are aware of my, my other work on the institution. And of course you're right that there are boundaries around which the IMF's behavior um, are constrained and those boundaries are to a good extent set by the major stakeholders of the institution. And there's a long, or I should say maybe a very large pile of prior research which suggests that the geopolitical 
strategic interest of the powerful member states does drive the institution's decision making. Uh, so I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think that argument actually needs to be wheeled back a bit because the powerful member states are not always interested in what the IMF is doing. The IMF has a big portfolio of programs. Currently, you know, over a hundred programs in the wake of the COVID crisis and the, you know, United States Treasury isn't paying attention or close attention to that, interested in what exactly is happening in all of those environments. So we should be careful to not try to make the case that the IMF is just an instrument of American power, which I, I don't think you were making that case, but sometimes I, I hear that argument. But you do bring up something which is very, very interesting, which is what kind of, if we, if we, if you do take my, if, if, if people take the view, like I've kind of moved toward that the IMF can't uh, sustainably hold human rights concerns at arm's length and say, that's not what we do because they've expanded the mandate in many ways to include other things which come close to human rights. We might even think about climate policy and human rights terms, then we have to think about what kind of institutional rules might actually advance the cause of human rights. And this section 701 is very, very interesting. Um, and it's interesting because it does empower the US executive director to try to intervene in these program negotiations, or at least at the approval stage to say, does this serve human rights goals or not? But you've pointed out that it's not invoked. And in fact, in the recent episode that I've just been reading about, uh, which pertains to Ethiopia, which is a country that's engaged in a civil conflict, where there's clear evidence of, of, of really severe human rights abuses. I think the Biden administration has issued an executive order uh, to try to restrict some international organizations, uh, bureaucrats from engaging on the ground in, in Ethiopia, but I don't know how binding that is. And I don't think that includes the, the IMF. So one then, one then wonders like, well, why are they not invoking section 701 uh, in the context of, of IMF lending? And I think that this then creates uh, an opportunity to actually think about what kind of institutional design would be appropriate for moving the IMF towards a more pro-human rights direction. Because if the United States has this provision and no other members have it, but the United States is unwilling to ever implement it, then we would need to think about something which doesn't hinge on the whims of one particular member. So what would that look like? Well, it might look like some kind of institutional rule, which at least requires consultation with other human rights groups to identify whether atrocities have been or are being committed in the places where the IMF is going. I don't think that that would be an impossible kind of rule change to follow, actually. And that doesn't necessarily involve a fundamental restructuring of the power dynamics within the institution. It's simply adding a layer of diligence to the lending process, which might actually then raise the costs for the institution to go into environments where atrocities, human rights abuses, other kinds of things we would like the IMF not to be involved in, or at least not exacerbating, 
the threshold for them to get involved would be a little bit higher. But as to why the Section 701 is not invoked, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why, why it's not invoked. I mean, the last four years, as you pointed out, under the Trump administration, it was certainly a non-starter. Human rights agenda was, was not something that administration was interested in. And why the Biden administration seems to have not wanted to invoke this, I, I, I can't say. Um, but I do think the IMF, as a multilateral institution, shouldn't depend entirely on the on a, on, a, on a law with the, that, that gives one member of the institution the ability to, to push this agenda. I think it should be something which is built into the institution's functioning um, in, a, in a more comprehensive way, in a way that doesn't just hinge on the United States' preferences over one particular program or another. Well, Steve, I would like to keep you here for even longer, um, but I feel like we have, um, we have uh, taken up a whole bunch of your time. We're really thrilled that you could you could come to join us. And and this the last part of our conversation has been um, interesting in ways that I I went beyond what I expected. In part because it's um I often wind up dismissing calls for the fund to do more because my instinct is the fund is just is there. It's one of the few institutions that um, actually seems to have power and to be run relatively well and effectively in a world of few well-functioning international organizations. And um, so people want to graft onto its, its procedures, um, you know, new procedures to deal with all kinds of other things that are sort of collateral to its mandate, whether, whether it's climate, whether it's human rights, and you're your um, your work and the and this conversation has made me uh, think that that's perhaps a bit uh, too simplistic of you. But uh, but um, in any event, that's maybe a conversation for another day. We're really really thrilled that you could join us, and we look forward to to continuing these conversations uh, later. Hopefully, I hope so. It was really fun. I would do this every week. I would do this every day if I could. But I don't think that's uh, on offer, nor is there great demand for it. But thank you for <laughs> for uh, for letting me uh, talk with you today. It was it was a lot of fun.